Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Alan Stein Jr. And Alan is absolutely incredible. This was one of my favorite episodes that I've recorded. And it was because Alan brought such great energy and such great information on personal development, becoming the highest version of yourself, and living a life that is true to your values. I loved what Alan was talking about on speaking and how to improve as a speaker, and he he gave some of his tips in this episode. He also talked at length about how he got his first job, which eventually led to him watching Kobe Bryant and also training Steph Curry. So incredible stories here, and we really dived into his story. Really grateful for this conversation. If you enjoyed this conversation, let me know on Twitter your thoughts at Hey Danny Miranda. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. And also, don't forget, these episodes are also going live on YouTube, which you can find at youtube.com slash Danny Miranda. So if you enjoy the podcast, you can also check out the video versions on YouTube. That's all for me for now. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. Let's get to the episode with Alan Stein Jr. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. First of all, Alan, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to a fun conversation. Likewise. So you're an author, a speaker, an entrepreneur, a consultant, but how would you define yourself? If I had to put a label on myself and I had to define myself, I would probably go with coach first. Mm. Uh, and, And I've always viewed... Uh, coach being very synonymous with teacher. Uh, while they're not identical, I, I think there's so many red threads that combine the two. Uh, so I'd like to believe at my heart, I'm a coach and speaking and writing and putting out content uh, are simply the platforms at which I share my my coaching philosophy and my life philosophy, if you will. Yeah, makes sense. So why don't we start off then with how you've gained some of your skills? And I have some stories that I want you to touch on because some of the stories you talk about, man, are absolutely incredible. Like the the first one I, I want to talk for you to talk about is is Frank Shamrock and and UFC legend Frank Shamrock and his plus one zero minus one his system for what he wants the future to hold and how he helps himself excel. So if you could talk a little bit about that, that would be amazing. Oh, most certainly, and yeah, that was a, a really impactful lesson that I learned. Uh, would have been the summer of 2017. Um, I was actually uh, speaking at a retreat up in Connecticut and Frank happened to be one of the other speakers. You know, one of the cool parts about the story, I had, I had never been a huge UFC guy. I mean, I've, I've heard some of the big names, but was never super into watching it. So uh, I found myself at this retreat and it was a rather smaller gathering, you know, probably less than 50 people total, including guests as well as staff. Uh, and we started off by going on kind of a long walk slash hike. Uh, and I found myself talking to this guy. And, you know, I mean, he, he was incredibly thoughtful, uh, really smart, had tremendous experience, great insight. 
I was really enjoying the conversation. And at the time, all I knew was his name was Frank, because uh, we all had kind of those generic name tags with our first name, you know, so we could call people by their name. And, and that was it and had no idea who he was. Uh, I knew he was from California or was at least living in California and just had a wonderful conversation. And a little bit later, I was talking to another one of the guests and they said, you know, do you know who that is? And I, I said, no, nah, I mean, he's Frank, seems like a great guy. And they said, that's Frank Shamrock, you know, UFC legend. And of course, I'd heard that name, you know, at that time, uh, I could probably have only named two or three uh, UFC fighters, you know, and Frank Shamrock and his brother, Ken Shamrock, were probably two of the three names I could name. So it was really neat that here I am talking to, you know, one of the best athletes of all time, uh, definitely one of the best UFC fighters, and arguably one of the most dangerous men on the planet. Uh, and here he was so insightful and so cerebral and so thoughtful. I just, I thought that was a really, that was really neat, you know, especially with a lot of other athletes, you know, if I was talking to a retired NFL lineman or a retired NBA player, I probably would have known immediately, hey, this guy was most likely a, an athlete just based on the eyeball test. But but Frank was a, a normal looking guy. I mean, he's incredibly fit. I mean, he's muscular, he's ripped, but he just looked like a normal guy and he mm. talked like a normal guy but he's anything but a normal guy, really an extraordinary man. And, and when he went on to give his talk to the rest uh, of the folks at the retreat, I sat in on it because uh, I attend every session because I always want to learn as much as I can. And he talked about the plus equal minus system, uh, which he just teed up so perfectly. And he said, you basically need to have three people in your life at all times. Uh, you need to have a plus. And that's what most of us would consider a traditional mentor, uh, somebody that's kind of already walked the path that we're trying to go down uh, that can send the elevator back down for you and, and help you, um, you know, give you some some tips and some tools and some strategies to hopefully help you avoid stepping on some of the same landmines that they did. Uh, then he said, you need to have what's considered an equal, uh, somebody that you would consider a peer uh, that's basically about in the same stage of life you are and has similar ambitions and dreams, and is really trying to do the same types of things you are. And you need to have that person to, uh, to be able to commiserate with, to, to celebrate small wins with, you know, possibly vent when things are a little bit tough and adverse, uh, but to learn from each other. Uh, and then you need to have what he calls a minus. And he was very specific in saying that he doesn't say minus in a diminishing or a derogatory way. He simply means you need to have someone in your life that's a few years behind where you are. Someone that kind of reminds you of who you were several years ago, where you can serve as the plus for them. And that he said, if you keep this plus equal minus, uh, and I've also heard it explained, uh, you know, in front of, next to, and behind, uh, same concept, that if you can always have those three people in your life, uh, it'll keep you sharp, it'll keep you accountable, and it'll make sure that you continue to learn. Uh, and he also said something else that's really important is you're not signing these people up for a lifetime contract. These people will change in your life, you know, sometimes every few weeks, sometimes every few months. Maybe you have someone in your life for a year or two, um, but you just need to make sure that you've got those three different vantage points at all times. And, you know, as soon as he said that, 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 that was just something that really resonated with me. And, and ever since then, I've tried to do the same. Yeah. And when you first started that story, really interestingly, you know, you said you just knew him as Frank and then someone told you that it was Frank Shamrock. 
that also happened to you when you met Paul Rabel and you're talking to Paul Rabel and, and you're just talking to like a guy named Paul. And then you turn around and someone goes, you, do you know who that is? That's the Michael Jordan of lacrosse. So how do you get yourself into these situations where you're talking to these high profile people, these incredible individuals, and then you're not even realizing who they are in the sense of like, like you're just talking to them like a normal person, like you're talking to me. So yeah, how do you do that? Well, well you know, one of the neat parts that you're a hundred percent right. And that's so insightful. The Paul Rabel story is almost identical. Um, a couple of the slight nuanced differences uh, were at that time, I couldn't name any professional lacrosse <laughs> and I didn't even know who Paul Rabel was once I was told, hey, this is Paul Rabel. <laughs> uh, but it was actually uh, Mike Jones, who's the head basketball coach at DeMatha Catholic High School and one of the best coaches that I've ever been around. Uh, and, and he was the one that said, that's Paul Rabel. He's the Michael Jordan of, of, uh, of lacrosse. So, you know, with how much reverence I have for Coach Jones and how much I enjoyed meeting Paul, I mean, same thing. He was an ordinary guy or appeared to be an ordinary guy, but very thoughtful, kind, you know, was very open. I mean, just a, a great dude. And then I go home and I Google him and I start going down a rabbit hole of, of reading, watching and listening to everything I can about Paul Rabel. And, a, and I surface a couple hours later and I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, this guy is super big time. And, and certainly someone, you know, Paul's somebody that, that I've, I've learned from, uh, I've befriended since we've, you know, uh, we've met on several occasions. And have just, I just have so much admiration uh, for the brand he's building, for the man he's become, for the extraordinary athlete that he is. Uh, so, so to me, that was uh, another neat story. But I, I think to answer your original question, I intentionally try to put myself in different environments where those things are just going to happen organically. You know, there, there was an old quote, and I, I know I say this in my book. Um, that I learned when I was really little as a basketball player. And it basically said, if you're the best player at your playground, you need to find a new playground. And, and I've seen that uh, very similar on a lot of Facebook memes. It says something to the effect of, you know, if, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to find a new room. And, and, and both of those concepts uh, are something that, that, you know, are in alignment with my core beliefs and core values, which is try to be around people that you can learn from. Try to be around people that that are more accomplished than you, that that have more wisdom in certain areas than you, that have more experience than you. And the more times I can put myself in those positions, then the more likely a Frank Shamrock or a Paul Rabel is is gonna you know come out of that. Yeah. So talk about when you're just starting your journey, when you graduate Elon University and you're just starting out. What happens from that point on to then? you know, you're, you're rebounding for Steph Curry and you're, you're attending Kobe Bryant's workouts. So like, what was the gap that allowed you to get from just a, a D2 college basketball player to watching the best of the best and coaching the best of the best? Well, you have to keep in mind from a time standpoint, you know, when I, I graduated school and left Elon in 1999, uh, at that time, less than one third of NBA teams even had a strength and conditioning consultant. So mm. the, the basketball performance industry, if you will, was really just starting. You know, Tim Grover had made some waves as being Michael Jordan's trainer. Um, and, and there were a few other people that had had a little bit of notoriety. Uh, but for the most part, this was, this was something that was brand new. And at that time, um, when I was graduating, I thought that I wanted to train NBA players, that that is exactly the path that I wanted to be on. 
Well, there happened to be a gentleman that, that lived here where I was from, uh, a suburb of Washington, D.C., uh, here in, in Rockville, Maryland, uh, that had trained and did train several NBA players. Um, he somehow, and this always, I always am fascinated by relationships, uh, he somehow was friends with a, a guy named David Falk. And David Falk was probably the first super agent, especially in the NBA. Uh, David Falk represented Michael Jordan, um, Patrick Ewing, uh, Lonzo Mourning, Coach K, uh, John Thompson, the, the former coach at, at Georgetown. I mean, he had just a remarkable roster of clients that he represented as an agent. And somehow those two had become friends. And I don't quite remember how they connected. But basically, uh, any of the new players that David Falk signed, this gentleman would start to train. And a good portion of them came from Georgetown. And and where I live is maybe 30 minutes from Georgetown University. So, you know, uh, you know, all of the best players coming out of Georgetown would train with him. And, you know, at that time when Georgetown was a, a powerhouse in the Big East, I mean, they were putting players in the NBA every single year. So I realized that this trainer who worked where I was from was training NBA players. And I thought, well, if that's what I want to do, I need to go work for this guy. So I basically hunted him down and said, look, I need to work for you. I don't care if it's unpaid. I don't care if you have me sweeping the floor, uh, folding towels, whatever you need me to do. I just need to be around you and I need to be around this. And um, when there's something that I really want, I'm usually fairly decent at the art of persuasion. And I kind of talked him in to taking me under his wing. And you know, at this time, I had a decent amount of, of theoretical and academic knowledge because I was studying constantly how to train athletes, but I was still very green when it came to working with athletes in person. So um, at first I was kind of like his apprentice, his assistant, uh, an intern, if you will, and would do everything that he asked. And slowly over time, I think he saw my enthusiasm. He saw my dedication to the craft. Uh, he saw how bad I wanted this. He would slowly start giving me some opportunities. like. Hey, I'm going to work these guys out. If you can spot them on this one exercise, that would be great. And then that would turn into, Hey, I'm going to work these guys out uh, before I do. If you can take them through their warm up, that would be great. And then, you know, within a year, it became, you know, I'm going to work these two guys out. Will you work these other two guys out at the same time? So I can kind of keep an eye on you while you're doing it. And then very soon that just came to, Hey, I don't have room in my schedule. So now you can start training these players yourself. And um, I, I'm so thankful for that opportunity. I mean, I got to cut my teeth very early in my career with some elite level players. And I don't ever mention them because they were not my clients. Um, so that's why that's usually not written in my bio line. Uh, but that was incredibly impactful and helpful. Uh, and then I decided to kind of break away from him after a couple of years and start my own thing and start my own training company. Uh, but at that time, I had realized after those couple of years that I actually did not want to work with NBA players, that my true passion was working with middle school and high school age players. Um, uh, and I say this very respectfully. I found that working with NBA players uh, oftentimes was more of a babysitting job. It was more of a, you know, we said we're going to train at 10 and you end up showing up at 1130. So I've been twiddling my thumbs for 90 minutes waiting for you. And I just, I didn't like that. Uh, mm -hmm. And I actually felt that I could make much more of an impression and be more of a role model uh, with kids that were in middle school or high school age. So I kind of left that specific genre and went into the high school age and, and really focused on that for the next almost 20 years, which is where I did most of my work. But the, the parallel, the through line that connected me to 
a Steph Curry or a Kobe Bryant or a LeBron James or a Kevin Durant was I was able to work at two different high schools here in the DC area, uh, Montrose Christian, which is where Kevin Durant graduated from, and DeMatha Catholic High School, which is where Victor Oladipo graduated from. So I was able to work with some future NBA players at the high school level. And that got me some contract work with Nike basketball, with Jordan brand, with USA basketball. And that's what opened up the doors for me to work many of those academies and camps for, for some of the players that you see behind me now. So, but, but that only happened because I was very focused on doing the best I could with middle school and, and high school age players. And the only slight uh, caveat to that was uh, I did do some pre-draft training. Uh, there were a few agents that were in this area. Uh, they knew I had experience working with some NBA guys, but they also knew that I was working with future NBA guys. So every year when the draft came around for like six to eight weeks before the draft, they would bring their players uh, into DC to live here um, to get ready for pre-draft. So that was when I met Stephen Curry for, you know, uh, uh, after I had, had had a chance to work with him at a skills academy, that was where I got to do some more intense work with him um, and a few different other players. So uh, that's kind of how the whole thing just slowly unfolded. But really the lessons to pull from that are, you know, find the very specific niche that you believe you'll be, you know, uh, the most impactful and influential and potentially most successful and then, you know, star where you are. You know, I was very thankful to work with middle school and high school age kids. Um, I wasn't consumed with, well, I need to be working with NBA players to validate who I am as a coach. Going back to that first part of the story, when you just get your way in the door by telling the trainer at the time, like, I need to work for you. I'll do whatever it takes. What did you specifically say to persuade him to give you an opportunity? Well, I think part of it was I impressed him very early because at the time uh, I was still living down at Elon, which is four and a half, five hours away from the DC area. And you have to keep in mind, you know, yes, we had email, but we weren't using it in 99 to the degree that we're using it now. I mean, it was one of those things where if you got an email of substance, you were actually surprised that you got an email and, and it was harder to find people's email addresses. Um, people still did things by good old fashioned handwritten letters and, and a lot of things by fax, which I know sounds so archaic. Uh, even cell phones at the time were basically flip phones. And this was even pretext. Like you still weren't able to text someone uh, in 1999. So from wow. Elon, you know, I wrote him a couple of letters. I faxed him a couple of letters. I called the gym a few times and basically just kept saying like, look, this is something I need to do. Um, you know, when do you have a few moments to meet with me? And I think he said it more of a test or more of a dare, but he basically said, you know, I could make time for you tomorrow around lunchtime. And, and I'm talking to him, you know, that's less than 24 hours away. And I said, sure, that works. And I hopped in my car and I drove five hours. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to build myself up into anything bigger. I didn't drive across the country, you know, on five minutes notice. Yeah, I drove five hours, you know, but I basically drove five hours for a, a, an impromptu lunch meeting. And then after the meeting, I drove five hours straight back. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that in and of itself, whether he intentionally did it as a test or not, basically said, okay, this kid wants it. He's hungry. He's written me several letters. He's called several times. He's faxed me several letters. And now on a moment's notice, he'll drive five hours for a 45 minute lunch interview, if you will. Okay. This is the type of kid I need to have around. So uh, I think, 
I don't think there was anything special about me. I just think that I, I really impressed him with kind of my grit initially. And that's what opened up the door. What do you think made you so clear on your vision that this was the path for you? Well, basketball was definitely my first love. And I fell in love with the game, you know, in in kindergarten when my parents signed me up for my first recreation team. Um, So I knew that I loved the game of basketball. And then as I matriculated up in in high school and I knew that I was going to play in college, uh, I started to have an, an equal affinity for strength and conditioning. You know, I had the strength shoes, the old platform shoes that that they had 20, 30 years ago that people used to improve their vertical jump. And, you know, I would jump rope for hours a day. And I was really into trying to build my body up to become a better player. So I really fell in love with the performance side, the strength, the conditioning, the nutrition, the mindset. So when I was graduating uh, Elon, I figured what in the world could be better than combining my original love of basketball with my new love of strength and conditioning. And, and even though it was, it was rather untapped and unproven at the time, as I said, there weren't very many people doing it. I just couldn't think of anything better. You know, at that time, um, I felt that the only way you could become a basketball coach was to also be a teacher. So, you know, originally I went to Elon thinking, I want to be a high school coach. And I thought the only path to do that was to be a teacher by day and a basketball coach by night. So I actually started as an elementary ed major. And after a couple of years, realized I was not very passionate about the teaching part, that I did not want to be a teacher. All I wanted to do was coach basketball. And I was not aware of anyone that just coached basketball for a living that didn't have another job. So that was what kind of pushed me to being, well, I could be a full-time trainer. And at the time, you know, you're basically a personal fitness trainer. You just tried to train as many basketball players as you could. That was about the best you could do. But because I was so into fitness for myself and nutrition, I figured, wow, this, this seems like a pretty good life. You know, in theory, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn from this guy, but I'm not really entering a vocation where I'm going to have a boss. I'm not really entering a vocation where I work from nine to five. I'm not entering a vocation where I have to wear a tie and sit in a cubicle. So as I'm checking these things off as kind of a younger knucklehead, I was like, man, what could be better than being in a gym all day long with people that want to improve their health and fitness? Sold. I'm done. That's it. This is all I want to do. Yeah. It sounds like you had the mental aspect of your performance on lock from a very young age in terms of fitness and and nutrition and just thinking about how to better improve your performance. Was it difficult for you to realize like, oh, I can't play at a certain level that I want to because your mind, I'm sure, was ahead of some people that you were playing with and your mind was ahead of some people who would go on to play professionally. But did it ever hurt you when you said to yourself, shoot, like my natural talent won't take me as far as I want it to go? No, that light bulb went off pretty early. You know, when I, when I was in elementary school and I'm the best player in my elementary school. And, and again, I can't stress enough. This is pre-internet. So, you know, when I grew up, your world was only what you could see. I mean, it was only as far as the end of the block you lived on and, and the kids that went to your playground to play. And kind of like the, the quote that I said earlier, you know, if I was constantly the best player on my playground, I mean, why wouldn't I think that I'd be a future NBA player? I thought that I was the best. And then then you go to middle school. So now you've got the best players from a few elementary schools coming to your middle school. And I was like, okay, well, now the competition's a little, little thicker, but I was still close to the best player at my middle school. So at this time, I'm still thinking, 
if you're the best wherever you are, well, that's what the NBA is. It wasn't till I got to high school uh, that I swallowed the humble pie and the world started to open up a little bit more when I realized, okay, uh, I, I'm, I'm not that good. I'm, I'm a pretty good player at my high school. And, and again, I'm not saying this to diminish myself. I mean, I was good enough to play college basketball, which puts you in the upper 1% of anyone that ever dribbles a ball. But it was very clear to me uh, that that my playing days were going to be over when Elon was done. And I was totally fine with that. Uh, in full transparency, um, during my sophomore year at Elon, I really got burnt out on the game of basketball. I actually mm. didn't enjoy it. You know, I, I viewed me being on scholarship as more of a job than a joy. And, you know, and, and depending on how much of this you want to unpack, you know, I really, I really developed a bad attitude my sophomore year. Uh, I was full of complaints. I was constantly blaming the coach on why I didn't play. I was always making excuses on why I wasn't playing very much. You know, it's, I'm thankful that I went through that because it's now given me a perspective and newfound empathy that I think makes me a better coach today. But how I behaved when I was a sophomore in college is 100 uh, 100% the exact opposite of what I believe and what I recommend people do now. You know, it's, it's almost embarrassing when I think of some of the ways I behaved, but that was part of my journey. And, and sometimes you got to learn things going, going through the fire and you got to learn things being a little bit hard headed. Uh, but I had definitely got burnt out on the game and it took a little while for that love to come back. During the time where I was burnt out on the game is when I really doubled down on the strength and the conditioning. So even at that time, it wasn't even just for basketball players that fascinated me. You know, I was uh, I was an intern in 1999 for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers strength staff during one of their spring trainings uh, when Tony Dungy was the coach. And, you know, so I did some work with some NFL groups, with some NHL players, with a variety of different athletes. And I just love the strength and conditioning. And then a little bit later is when my love for basketball started to come full circle. And I said, man, I really only want to work with basketball players. And I was totally at peace with that. You know, once I knew that I was not going to be good enough to play after college, I was, I was totally fine with that. I was actually thankful that I was still going to be able to stay in the game uh, in this fashion. And one other thing to, to keep in mind with just how much the game of basketball has grown there are so many more opportunities to play professionally today than there were then. You know, I mean, uh, back then, if you went to Elon, you were not going to be a pro. And I say that very respectfully of all of my, my good friends and former teammates. None of them went to play professionally. Whereas today, if you play at Elon, I mean, that's a, a legitimate mid-major school. A lot of Elon players go on, especially to play overseas and have long, wonderful careers. So just the overall level of the game, um, it, it's amazing how much it's increased. So you kind of take the growth of the game of basketball, the growth of performance training, strength and conditioning, especially in basketball, and the internet, which kind of can tie everything together. And, and that's kind of the perfect storm for where we are today. I'd love to go back to sophomore year of college and talk a little bit about what got you to a new frame of mind. Well, and, and to put it into context, you know, Elon was not very good when I was going there. So uh, there was myself and four other freshmen uh, that were coming in as the freshman class. And because Elon was not very good as freshmen, we all played a lot. 
Uh, I think I started half the games as a freshman. So I'm thinking, I mean, I'm set, you know, I went from kind of being the man in high school and I now found a school, a college where I'm going to be the man for the next four years. And I got very complacent. You know, I did, I stopped doing the extra work. I didn't come in early and I didn't stay late. You know, I was much more interested in being in a fraternity and chasing girls and kind of doing that thing. You know, I still, I still went to every obligation. I mean, I never missed a practice. I never missed a workout. I gave my best effort when I was there. Uh, and in my mind, that was enough. Uh, you know, I didn't realize that that's only the ante to sit at the table. Like if you want to play a hand, you got to put, you know, you got to put a few chips in before you even start. Uh, I, that didn't dawn on me. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. And yet everybody else was coming in and working on their game. So all of the other freshmen that were with me, they got a lot better during their freshman year leading up to their sophomore year. And I didn't, I basically stayed flat. Then take on top of that, which every college basketball class tries to do or, or program tries to do is then they were bringing in freshmen the following year after me that were going to compete with me for my time. And they kept leveling up. So the guys they were bringing in after me were really good players. So if you take into account, you know, I got complacent. I didn't get better. Those in my class got better. And those coming up behind me were better and were hungry you know, I went from being, you know, uh, a, a, on the starting five to being like the 10th or 11th man, just like that. And mm -hmm. when that was basically proposed that, hey, you're now pretty low on the depth chart, you know, I saw that there was a fork in the road. And obviously the fork that I would, the, the, the path I would take today would be, okay, well, I need to, I need to get back in the gym. I need to earn playing time. I need to show the coach that I'm just as capable uh, of, of my teammates that had grown so much that year. And I'm willing to work to beat out the guys that are coming in after me. You know, I'm going to prove that I deserve to be a starter. That was one path. And then the other path was to just say F this and complain about it and make excuses and blame the coach. And for whatever reason, I chose that path. And you know, I, I really started to develop a bad attitude um, and it just started to spiral out of control. You know, at that age, I was also incredibly hard headed. You know, I thought I knew everything. So even when my parents would try to talk some sense into me, I just disregarded it. You know, when I had other people in my life trying to talk some sense into me, I just disregarded it. It was kind of the, well, you just don't get it. You know, you don't understand. The coach doesn't like me. The coach doesn't, you know, whatever. And, and I really hid behind that. And, you know, I really wallowed in that for the remainder of my college career. I mean, I really never played any meaningful minutes for the rest of my college career. And it's one of those ones where it's almost a, a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's, you know, see, coach doesn't like me, so I don't play. So then I don't put in any more extra work. And he continues to not play me. Duh. And then I keep saying, see, I told you, see, he really doesn't like me. Now I'm a junior and he doesn't, I'm a senior and he still doesn't want to play me. Well, at that point, you know, I didn't get any better from my freshman year to my senior year. You could only imagine how good my, my teammates were that were of the same age. You know, they got exponentially better every year. I mean, looking back now with some, some clarity, there's no question that I should not have been playing but I didn't realize it at the time and, and, and took the path of this is all happening to me. This is so unfair. And, you know, that's, that was really the, the choice that I, I made. And it wasn't until I got a little older and thankfully started to become a little bit more open to other people's feedback 
that I realized this was all my own undoing and, you know, I needed to change my attitude and my mindset if I wanted to change the results I was going to get. What do you think? I've also been in that situation as the hard-headed college kid. What do you think the best way to talk to someone like that who's in that state from your perspective? Well, for me now, I can come at them from a place of very high empathy and compassion. I can say, hey, look, I'm not judging you because I was you. And, mm-hmm. and let me share a little bit about you know, how I behaved when I was your age and let you know that there are these two paths and you have the choice. And, and say, hey, even if, even if you want to continue being hard-headed and even if you want to continue thinking the world is plotting against you, fine. That's fine. You can keep doing that. And you may come out of it at some point because I did. I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm telling old war, war stories here in my mid-40s and that I didn't make any changes. The light bulb eventually came, you know, turned on for me, you know, but it happened when I was 25. If it would have happened when I was 19, boy, that would have probably been a little bit more useful, but it didn't. So now at 45, I don't spend any any time looking back with regret. Uh, I share these things very openly because I hope that it's valuable to you and especially to your listeners. Um, so I don't beat myself up over it. I've moved on to the next play, but it does give me empathy to talk to younger players. And this was really helpful uh, when I was at Montrose and DeMatha because you know at Montrose and DeMatha, both of those programs were college level programs for high school age students. I mean, the the player that was at the end of the bench, the 15th man at DeMatha is still good enough to play college basketball. That's how good the program is at DeMatha. So when a player at DeMatha would be belly aching about not getting much playing time, I could put my arm around them and have that conversation and just say, look, I know and understand how you're feeling and why you're feeling that way. I too have felt that way. I was never as good as you are, but I still felt that way. And, and here's kind of my path and my journey. And just know that even if you continue to be hardheaded, I'm still going to love you. Even if you're going to continue to think the world's plotting against you, I'm still going to try to help you. Like I tried to remove judgment. I tried to remove expectation and just most importantly, let them know, which was ultimately the lesson that I learned is this is 100% your decision. You do not decide how much playing time you get but you decide how you'll respond to whatever playing time you get. You know, you decide whether or not you come in early and you stay late after practice, even when you know that you're not going to play. You know, you decide whether you're going to give up or you're going to keep pushing forward. And just know that, that, you know, in that relationship, while you're still here at DeMatha, I will support you the entire time. I will do everything I can to help you. Um, So for me, that's actually been uh, one of my most helpful tools is letting these players know that, hey, you know, I've been in the same situation and I was as, as hard-headed as could be until probably 24, 25. And then, and I don't want to act like I just flipped the switch. You know, I was still very closed off to a lot of feedback, even into my early 30s. I still thought I knew everything, even into my early 30s. Like this was not a gradual process. But what I did at those ages was I started to open myself up to, to, to learning and growing from new people. So it's been a, a long process and, and I don't think for one second that I'm done yet. I mean, I still have plenty of areas that I need to continue to tweak and to improve, but I'm just very thankful now. My life is going in the right direction. You know, my arrow and my trajectory is pointing in the direction that I want it to go. And in my 20s and even early 30s, it, it wasn't necessarily doing that. 
What were some of the things that happened in your 20s and early 30s that led you to a new way of thinking, a new way of living? The big one was reading. You know, I hated reading when I was in school, elementary school, middle school, high school, and even college. I loathed someone else telling me what I needed to read. They would pick the books and then, you know, you'd have to do some type of book report on them or there'd be some type of test. And there were very few books that were assigned that that were my cup of tea. I just wasn't into them. Once I graduated from school and I realized, you know, hey, I can read anything that I want. Um, you know, obviously I could have read anything I wanted in high school and college as well, in addition to what I was assigned, but for some reason that didn't dawn on me. But when I said, you know what, I can start reading any books that I want. Then I started really diving headfirst into what we call the, the self-development space, the self-help space, you know, reading inspirational books, um, and listening to, which at this time, uh, would be on CD, listening to inspirational, uh, people like Jim Rohn and Les Brown and Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and the motive, the first wave of motivational speakers. And I'm reading books by Coach K and Rick Bettino and Jack Canfield. And I'm just, I'm constantly devouring this stuff and I just couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I was an incredibly voracious reader and I think that's what opened me up because the, these weren't people standing over top of me telling me that I needed to change and telling me I was being hardheaded and foolish. Uh, I was just reading a book and the information was the one that started to guide me into a different direction. So uh, starting to read is absolutely the spark uh, that changed everything for me. Such an important habit and gets so overlooked. Do you think that the reason why you didn't read in the first 25 years of your life was because it was forced upon you? Absolutely. Forced upon me. And I just, I had very minimal interest in those things Mm. still to this day. And I'm not, I'm not claiming this is a good trait to have. If it's something I'm not interested in, I just, I don't give much effort for it. And, you know, at this point, I now at 45 have the self-awareness to know what things in my life are most important, like my children, my work, you know, and I know what things I'm most interested in. You know, it's, it's even funny over the past 10 months that we've been in this global pandemic, um, I'm probably not the only one that has watched uh, more Netflix and more shows on Amazon Prime than normal. And it's even funny, even with, with shows, if it's something that I'm not interested in, I just, I have no desire. Uh, but if it's something that I'm really interested in, I can have razor sharp focus and precision, precision and, and, and it can be all encompassing. So, you know, I very rarely read anything outside of that the things that I believe will make me better for my craft. Most of what I read these days are still underneath that self-development, self-help uh, genre. Uh, occasionally there'll be something else, you know, I'll read a book on social media marketing, or I'll read a book on how to improve, you know, uh, a podcast or something like that. But those are very technical. But outside of that, you know, I, I don't read much fiction. I don't read many stories. Um, when I'm watching uh, programs on TV, I'm not really into sci-fi and make-believe. You know, I was never really into Star Wars and those types of things. You know, I like watching true stories. I like watching documentaries. I like watching things that I believe will make me better at my craft. One of the things that you've mentioned in previous interviews when I was doing research for this conversation that you enjoy watching is stand-up comedy. Can you talk a little bit about why stand-up comedy and how that's played a role in your speaking career? 
Well, funny enough, that seed was planted very, very early in my life because, you know, uh, when I was a kid, you know, even elementary school age, uh, now this is before CDs, this is before cassette tapes, this is when you had albums on vinyl. And my dad uh, had always liked stand up comedy. And he had a bunch of stand up comedians on vinyl. And the two that I remember the most uh, were Steve Martin and Bill Cosby. And there, there are two, and I obviously am well aware of Bill Cosby's indiscretions since then. So this is by no means condoning his character, but I think there's very few people that would argue what a pioneer he was in the comedic space and what a genius he was as a stand-up comic um, and so forth. And same thing with Steve Martin. I mean, you're talking about two Hall of Famers in that regard. And I remember just listening to their stuff over and over and over. And one, it made me laugh. Uh, there are very few people I've ever come across in my life that don't like to laugh. Now, I know we all have different senses of humor and I might think something's funny and you don't think it's funny. That's fine. But I'm pretty sure you like to laugh and you just need to find what makes you laugh. And I'm the same way. So first and foremost, I just loved laughing. Uh, next, I was just fascinated by kind of the craftsmanship and showmanship that all these guys had was a microphone. And there's this entire room full of strangers. And in Steve Martin's case, you know, I mean, he would sell out Madison Square Garden. I mean, you're talking arenas full of people that paid money with an expectation to laugh and with nothing other than a microphone, he could basically take those people on a journey for 60 to 70 minutes. I was just, I was blown away by that. And, and it's funny because I think that's really where the breadcrumbs were first laid that I would eventually go into keynote speaking. Um, while I certainly try to interject humor into my keynotes, I have no desire to be a stand-up comedian, but I want to have that same command. You know, I want a group of people that come into my keynote with an expectation to learn something. And all I have is a microphone. And in some cases, you know, potentially a slideshow or some AV stuff, uh, but that's more for to hold their attention and to keep them in it. Um, so I think that's where that was first planted. And then uh, next was George Carlin and, and George Carlin was incredibly different than Cosby and Steve Martin because he was, he was very dirty and very politically incorrect. And, you know, when you're of middle school age, anything that's taboo, anything with cuss words, you're just, I was naturally drawn to. So, you know, now I'm hearing someone that, that was doing it at an elite level, but boy, he was kind of counterculture. And I just thought that was so cool. So that was kind of where the initial seeds were planted. And I've always loved stand-up comedy since. Um, but it now, in addition to just my pure love of the genre and my pure love of laughing, um, I really study stand-up comedians to improve my public speaking. Um, you know, I, I check out their physicality and their facial expressions and their timing and their tonality, the way they tell stories, you know, how they use a punchline and just the, the pure journey that they take someone on. You know, I, I aim to emulate many of those traits. And, you know, so for me, it's, it's a double win. I really enjoy the art form. I enjoy laughing, but it also helps add value uh, to what I'm doing. And, and a close parallel to that is my, my love for hip hop music. You know, uh, same thing. Uh, I'm, I have no desire and nor will I ever become a rapper, 
but I, I have so much admiration for the skill set of someone uh, that writes music and can and perform music and hip hop. You know, there's something very melodic about it. There's, you know, they use imagery and storytelling um, and they too have to change the way that they deliver their material. And, you know, Eminem is a perfect example. Uh, I certainly don't condone um, all of his content. I, I don't condone, you know, uh, his homophobic and misogynistic uh, lyrics. But you want to talk about someone who's done just about everything in that space over the last 20 years and, and has, has, has done it from a variety of different angles, talking about a variety of different topics. You know, some of his songs are so different, um, but, but his command of the English language and his ability to tell a story and paint imagery, and most important, his ability to have this raw, visceral emotion is just remarkable to me. I mean, uh, when you listen to an Eminem song, regardless of whether you agree with the content, there's no question how he feels when he's singing that. You know, when he sings a song about killing his mom, you know it's coming from a place of anger and a place of rage. There, there's nothing hidden behind that. And I've just, I've always found that fascinating. So those are definitely two areas that still to this day, I consume as much as I can, um, but now I actually have a reason for doing it because I'd like to believe it makes me a better speaker. Yeah, I read somewhere that Eminem, when he was younger, read the entire dictionary cover to cover. It's pretty incredible and speaks to working your ass off and and not like and caring just about the end product and caring about the process. So incredible. And another connection I want to make is with Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary Vaynerchuk also gets some of his his love for public speaking from one, stand-up comedy, two, hip-hop. And it's very interesting seeing the connection on both those fronts. Oh, so, for sure. Well, yeah. well one, thing, one thing I was going to add that, that, that I also appreciate about both of those art forms is where they're very similar to, to keynote speaking is you start with an idea or a concept in mind and, and you throw it out there in the, be, in the way that you think is best at present, but then you have to continually refine it and tweak it. You know, uh, I, I do listen to now, I listen to a, a ton of podcasts that feature stand-up comedians as their guests and they mm. talk about their journey and they talk about their process. They talk about even specifically some of their jokes and every single one of them, and these are the best in the world, Every single one of them says, I mean, it is incredibly rare, like hitting the lottery rare, that the way you write the joke the first time is mm -hmm. the way that it will end up. Like you start with a premise, you know, hey, I'm getting ready to board a flight. I see something that happens that I think could be kind of funny. I jot down a couple of notes. I noodle on it for a little bit and I come up with kind of the premise and the setup and the punchline. And then I try it in front of an audience for the first time, but I'm going to keep tweaking it. Do I need to add a word or take away a word? Do I need to add some physicality? Do I need to do it louder and faster? Or do I need to do it softer and quiet and more quiet? Uh, do I need a longer pause in between the setup and the punchline? Is there a funnier word to use in the punchline? And they try it so many different times before they get that joke to what I think they would consider uh, in today's day and age, Netflix special ready. You know, when, when back in George Carlin's day, uh, back when HBO was really the only group that would do full length specials, uh, Comedy Central would do 30 minute 
like stand-up specials, but HBO was the only one that would do a full hour. And because it was HBO, um, uh, it would be much rawer. I mean, there, there'd be some definitely some politically incorrect commentary and certainly some foul language. But George Carlin would spend most of the year in and out of smaller clubs and, and theaters practicing the material, refining it, tweaking it. And then by the end, he would have that stuff down to perfection and he would record his HBO special. Then he would throw all of that content out and he would start over again. And he'd spend most of the year working on it, refining it, tweaking it, trying, and then he'd record a special. And there's there's a lot of comics that that follow that recipe today. And, and the reason I bring that up, it's the same thing with keynote speaking. Now, I'm not trying to develop the perfect keynote at the end of the year. I need to make sure that every keynote I give is going to deliver for, for the client. So I'm not saying that I'm, I'm trying a bunch of material just to see if it works, but you better believe over time and after telling the same story over and over, it gets tweaked and it gets refined. And you know, when I tell some of these stories today that I tell in my keynotes, they're vastly superior to when I told them three or four years ago. Same thing with hip hop. You know, you probably have a premise for, for a song or maybe you have a couple of ideas that could go into the lyrics, but you have to keep working them and massaging them. You have to keep trying new things. And, and that work is really messy. You know, as a comedian, you might, you know, some of these guys, even elite level comics, the best of the best still will go do a five minute open mic where they can just try a couple of jokes because they just want to see how the audience reacts. And then they'll slowly start to work that into their routine and so forth. And it's the same thing with keynote speaking. Um, if I was going to give a keynote and I actually have one to give tomorrow, um, I mean, I have the big rocks in place of what it is that I'm going to share. And I've done my due diligence and my preparation to make sure that I'm going to customize something that's going to be very impactful uh, for this client. But there will be a little bit of room to ad lib tomorrow. There'll be a little bit of room to improv and try something out. And then I'll take some notes afterwards and say, okay, this little thing I tried worked really well. Let's do more of that next time. Or this little thing I tried did not go over as well as I thought. Is that something worth tweaking? Or is it something I just need to toss out? And constantly making sure that I'm making these changes. Because the goal for me is for every successive keynote, to be the best one I've ever delivered. And, and obviously that's a lofty goal and that's not always going to happen, but that's certainly my, my goal. I want to make sure that if you say, Hey, Alan, what's the best keynote you've ever given? My answer with a smile and a wink is the next one. And, and I really and truly want that to happen. And it can only happen if you're okay with the messiness of doing the work. You're okay with trying something that you don't know if it's going to go over well, if it's going to be funny, or if it's going to be impactful, or if it should have gone in this area. There have been times where I tell a story and a lesson, and then over, uh, you know, when I'm reflecting on it afterwards, I think, you know what, I actually should move that towards later in the program. I think it makes more sense there, and it will be more impactful there. But the number one thing to remember as a speaker is it's about the audience. It's not about me, it's about the audience. And my goal is to refine my material and work on my content and sharpen my delivery so that I'm making that the best experience for them possible. How have you dealt with the COVID quarantine period of working to, you know, you're used to seeing people in person. You're used to getting their reactions live. And now I don't know how many speeches you've done over Zoom, but it's like, 
that's a completely different animal. How have you managed that and thought about that? It was a really tough adjustment at first. And, and here's why. So for this recording that you and I are doing uh, over Zoom, um, I can see your face. I can see your facial expressions. I can, I can hear you. You can give me feedback in the real time, like a smile and a nod like you just did. This is not much different than if you and I were sitting across the table from each other or sitting across the table in a podcast studio. It's Now, it's not the exact same. Uh, we're not sharing the same space or having the same, you know, breathing the same air. Uh, I still think that in person would be able to heighten it just a, a, a slight degree. However, when I'm giving a, a virtual keynote to 200 people, uh, they're all muted. In most cases, if speaker views up, I don't even see them. I don't put the gallery view up because that can be very distracting. What I see is a webcam and I usually see me underneath it. And I'm just staring down the barrel of this cavernous webcam and I'm delivering material and there is absolutely no feedback. I mean, it is deathly silent. silent. There is no, nothing coming back. I can't see if people's heads are nodding. I can't hear someone say, ooh, or I can't see someone look down to write some notes, which in person, that's a cue. You know, if I say something and all of a sudden everyone's head goes down to the table to write something mm -hmm. down, I realize that what I just said was helpful and impactful to them. So then I let it breathe for a moment. I give them a couple of moments to digest it and let them write it down. Uh, or if I say something in person uh, and, and the crowd starts to laugh, I let the joke breathe for a minute. I, I, I let them laugh. I don't step on my own joke and start talking immediately. And that's really hard to do via Zoom. Um, I know that when I go back and I watch some of my first Zoom presentations when COVID first started, uh, I mean, I was like a runaway freight train. Uh, you can already tell and your listeners can tell I have a naturally fast rate of speech. You know, I, I talk rather fast and, and I've always been that way. Um, I'm certainly no genius by any means, but my mind moves very fast and my speech moves very fast. And many times though, if you talk too fast as a keynote speaker, you come across as nervous. You come across as, oh my God, I just got to get this out so I can get off the stage because I'm so nervous. And that's certainly not the case. Like I, I love what I do, but, but I had to go back and watch it and say, hey, even though there's not these natural breaks of laughter, there's not a natural break of someone writing something down. There's not a natural break of I'm on one side of the stage and for dramatic effect, I'm going to pause and slowly walk to the other side in order to make my next point. All of that was taken away. So now I had to figure out other ways to make sure that I could be just as polished during a, a, a Zoom call or virtual call. And that was challenging. But just like anything else, it gets better with practice. Uh, it gets better because I would watch those talks. And some of them, those first ones were very painful for me to watch. Because here it was, I thought I had made all this progress being on stage in person and then when we were all had to do things remotely and virtually, it was like I went right back to being a rookie again. And now I got to get my reps again. And now I'm at a point, having done hundreds of them over the last 10 months, that I'm getting better at it. And I'm thankful because now I think I've been able to <coughs> excuse me, sharpen my speaker sword in a very different way. And when I do get back out on, in, on stage in front of live audiences again, uh, I think some of these traits that I've been able to work on virtually are, are going to be very helpful at that time. Yeah, I, I'm going to assume that when you go back to speaking normally, you're going to be like, wow, that actually helped. And that was actually an advantage 
and all that time where I was thought it was a disadvantage is actually going to help me. One of those moments where you made me jot down and give me chills and I was watching you speak and it was just to a conference room and you're talking about hell on a hill and you're talking about just what your friend said to you. And I would love for you to tell that story here because I'm telling you, man, when you told me that story via YouTube, I was like, oh my God, I just got chills. So I'd love for you to tell it here. I'll be happy to. Well, it's funny. This is actually uh, Hell on the Hill came one one week after the event where I met Frank Shamrock. Wow. Um, so uh, a gentleman named Jesse Itzler, who is a remarkable speaker, a remarkable author, a serial entrepreneur. I mean, he started numerous uh, seven-figure companies, um, just, just a brilliant guy. And he is an, an endurance super freak. I mean, you're talking about a guy that's run 100 miles before. Uh, and Jesse's always been someone that I've I've really respected and admired, um, not just for what he's achieved, but for who he is. I mean, he, he's a very present father. He's a wonderful husband. He's a brilliant businessman. Um, he's a real out-of-the-box thinker, just a remarkable guy. And he is someone um, that I had really uh, looked up to from afar for a couple of years and had we had never met. And um, long story much shorter, uh, Jesse invited me up to his home in New Fairfield, Connecticut to speak at this retreat, uh, the one where I met Frank Shamrock. And uh, as one of the speakers, you know, again, I, I thought everything that I thought about Jesse was heightened after that experience. Uh, as cool as he was, he was even cooler when it was done. As smart as he was, he was even smarter when it was done. It was amazing. And he said at the end of it, you know, Alan, I have this event called Hell on the Hill uh, coming up next week. Uh, why don't you come back to it? So with very little time to train or very little preparation, uh, I came back up to Connecticut the following week. And for this event, Jesse invites 70 uh, of his friends to run this endurance event. And to paint the picture, his home in New Fairfield, Connecticut, it's absolutely breathtaking. Uh, it, it backs up to a beautiful lake. But the backyard is incredibly unique because the backyard is 85 yards long. So almost the length of a, a professional football field. And it's at a 40 degree slope which is incredibly steep. Uh, most conventional treadmills at a gym only go up to 15%. And if you've put one of those up to 15% to even go for a walk, you feel like you're going to fall off the back of the earth. 15% is really steep. Well, we're talking about 40%. So the challenge for the 70 of us that day, back in the summer of 2017, were to go up and down this hill that's 85 yards long and 40 degrees slope 100 times. And he very appropriately called this event Hell on the Hill. Uh, and that it certainly was. You know, as we've uncovered during this discussion, you know, I, I was a former college basketball player. I've always been into health and fitness. I've always been in pretty good shape, you know, for my age. But at the time, this was definitely the toughest undertaking I'd ever attempted. Uh, and I had already run a marathon at that point. Uh, but this was an, an all new, uh, a whole new beast. When I got to about rep 70 of going up and down this hill, you know, I was done. I was mentally fried. I was, I was checked out. I was ready to quit. You know, I could feel blisters forming under my big toes. You know, I had throbbing in my knees and my back and my, my legs were chafed. And I just figured, man, there's no way I can do 30 more of these and started to psych myself out with some negative self-talk. And there just happened to be one of my friends was running as well. And his name's Steve Wojciechowski. Uh, for anyone that follows basketball, especially if you like Duke basketball like I do, you know, Steve Wojciechowski is a Duke icon. 
an absolute legend and a god in Durham. And he's also the current head coach at Marquette. And I knew that Steve and I were on about the same, uh, the same number. Like we were going at about the same pace. So when I was just about ready to quit, figuring I had 30 left, you know, I asked Steve how many he had. And he kind of smiled, which was a little irritating at the time. And he said, I've got one rep. And I looked at him funny and, and was about to, to MF him a couple of times when he said, I have one rep 30 more times. And, and that just reminded me of a concept that I really try to live by, which is to live in the present moment. And to live in the present moment, you do a few things. One, you don't worry about whatever just happened in your life you start to focus on the next thing that's going to happen. That's called the next play mentality. So uh, I, I shouldn't have been worried, you know, about uh, how hard the 70 were. All I needed to worry about was just doing one more. Like, don't even worry about the 100. Just get up and down this hill one more time. And there's very few times in our life that you have just one more of something to do and you can't do it. You know, when you break it down into something that small and you just focus on the next one you have to do, uh, it takes something that looks like an impossible goal and it shrinks it down into something much more manageable. Being in the present moment is also about focusing on the only two things you have control over, which is your own effort and your own attitude. You know, I had allowed my focus to shift on the, the blisters on my toes and my knees and my back and, and look at how how many people have already finished and I haven't even finished. And, and I was focusing on all of the things that I had no control over instead of just saying, Alan, you know what? You just need to get up and down this hill one more time and do it with the best effort and the best attitude that you can. And then the last part of living in the present moment is learning how to embrace the process. And, and very similar to what I just said, I took my focus off of the 100. I detached from the outcome and just said, don't even worry about that. Just go up the hill one more time. You can reevaluate it at the end of that rep, but just get up the hill one more time. And if you can say that to yourself 30 successive times, then you'll end up finishing the goal that you initially set out. And, and thankfully, that's what I did. Uh, it took me just over four hours to go up and down the hill a uh, hundred times. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad that I was able to finish. I was one of the last ones to finish for sure. Um, but yeah, uh, Steve's reminder of just live in the present moment, focus on the next rep, uh, was something that was very powerful and much needed at the time, and certainly something that I've I've emphasized numerous times since. How have you taken that and applied it to your practical day to day? Well, the big part of it is a couple. One, next play, the next play mentality, and this was not something that that Steve Wojciechowski came up with himself. Uh, I believe Coach K, uh, the head coach at Duke is the originator of that concept. But where it was really taught to me was through Mike Jones, the head basketball coach at DeMatha, who would say to the DeMatha players all of the time, next play. You just turn the ball over. It's okay, next play. You just missed a wide open shot. Don't worry about it, next play. I know the referee missed a call, next play. And he conditioned the players to not worry about the play that just happened, but focus on the next one instead. And, and I can't tell you how many times every day of my life I say next play to myself and I, I just whisper it quietly or just say it internally. Um, but no matter what happens, I have to move to the next play. And that's that experience with Steve certainly reminded me of that. But I think what was most important was this detachment from outcomes and results 
and focus more on the process. And even more important than that is learn to love the work, like learn to love the process, you know, and I know this has been overused and I don't know who came up with this, but it's the difference between have to and get to, you know, I didn't have to do 30 more reps. I got to do 30 more reps. Here I am. I have an opportunity to be at one of my heroes' homes, participating in a really unique and exclusive event with some high performers and some amazing people. I get to test my, my, my physical and my mental and my emotional toughness. Like what an amazing opportunity. And, and I allowed myself to veer off and start to whine and complain and make excuses and focus on all of the wrong things when instead I should have said, man, how unbelievable is this opportunity? The sun is shining. I'm surrounded by great people. There's some music playing. I get to do 30 more reps and I'm going to do them with the best effort and attitude that I'm capable of. And we all need these reminders. You know, th this is not about living a life of perfection. This is about being much more focused on progress and on the process. So for me now, yes, there are certain things I would love to be able to do in my life and certain achievements and, and, and certain goals, no question. But I spend very little time thinking about any of those things. I put most of my time, attention, and focus into the process of what it will take to make those things much more likely. Because you can't guarantee outcomes. You can't guarantee any results, no matter what it can be. You know, and this, is, this helps in every single area of my life. You know, at present, I'm writing a second book. I'm writing a follow-up to Raise Your Game. And the only part that I have control over is writing the best book that I'm capable of, is putting my heart and soul into a book that I really believe will be very impactful and influential to the readers. But that's it. That's where I stop the control. I do not control how many people buy it. I do not control whether or not it makes a bestseller list. I don't even control if people will like it or find it helpful. That's all on them. That's on their side of the fence. And anytime that I spend worried about things that are outside of my control is time not invested in things, <coughs> excuse me, in my control. So I try to, to keep that focus on there. And I will say, generally speaking, I'm pretty good at doing that now. Yes, every couple of weeks, um, I'll, I'll find myself distracted or find myself worrying about the wrong thing. And this is where two things are incredibly helpful. One, I have the, the self-awareness and the systems in place where I'm constantly reflecting on my life where I can catch myself. I can catch myself saying, you know, man, I wish I had more people that listen to my podcast. I just checked last week's numbers and they're not near as good as I think they should be. And then I catch myself and go, Alan, you have no control over that. The only thing you can ask yourself were those episodes the best you were capable of producing. And if the answer to that is yes, then just let the chips fall where they may. If the answer to that was no, I could have put out better podcasts, then that's where my attention's going to go. My attention's going to go into putting out better content, not sitting around wishing more people were consuming mediocre content. So for me, uh, part of it is the self-awareness and the self-reflection. And the other part of it is insulating myself with an inner circle of people who tell me when I'm distracted, who say, Alan, I think you're worried about the wrong thing right now. You know, why don't you get back to focusing on the process? And these are people that, that care about me and want to see me happy, fulfilled, and successful. And because I've given them permission to hold me accountable, I'm very thankful that they do that. So, um, you know, all of those lessons that I learned from that Hell on the Hill story uh, are things that, that I carry with me every single day. Who is your inner circle made out of? 
It's it's a variety of components. Um, I mean, one, uh, I have certainly have my parents and my parents are more on kind of a macro level. You know, my parents barely know how to turn a podcast on. So I'm certainly not going to my parents uh, for help on how I can get more listeners. So my parents are, in, are part of my inner circle just on big life decisions and how I'm behaving in general. Um, my brother, actually my younger brother, uh, who actually does produce and edit my podcast and manages all of my social accounts. I mean, he's, he's my digital ninja. He's my, my right-hand man. Uh, I mean, we talk on a daily basis and he's a little bit of both because he gets to see what everyone sees and he gets to see what very few people see during the unseen hours behind the curtain. Uh, I have a girlfriend who certainly holds me to an incredibly high level uh, of accountability. Um, my manager slash agent, Michelle, uh, is someone else from a professional standpoint, holds me to a very high level of accountability. But we've worked together long enough that I also very much consider her a friend and a mentor. So she also is not afraid to speak up on things in my personal life as well. Um, and then there's a few other kind of one-offs of people that uh, they're friends and their colleagues. You know, I may have, they may have been a friend first and become a colleague, or they may have been a colleague first and it developed into a friendship, but there's a handful of people uh, that I either proactively run stuff by and say, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. I would love your thoughts, or I'm thinking about trying this. Are there any blind spots that I'm not aware of right now? Um, but those people also know that they that I've given them permission, um, and I don't say that in an authoritative way. I want them to know that I need them to give me feedback. I need them to call me out when I'm acting like a moron or, or making a boneheaded mistake. Uh, I need them to tell me, hey, that, that tweet you just made might rub a few people the wrong way. Did you ever think of it this way? Like, I want that, and, and I'm very appreciative that those, those people are in my life. Sounds like of huge emphasis on open-mindedness and empathy and self-awareness. How does one, huge question, but how does one go about cultivating those skills? Well, self-awareness actually starts many times by getting some outside help, which I know sounds incredibly counterintuitive to the name self. Um, you know, I always found this funny. One of George Carlin, one of my favorite uh, jokes by George Carlin was uh, he's talking about this concept of a self-help book. And he's like a, a self-help book. How is it self-help if you're getting help from another person? That's just called help. And you know, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't do his material near as funny as he does. But there was something to that that I always found just, just kind of funny. Uh, he said same thing with motivation. You know, who needs a motivation book if if you're motivated enough to get in, get up, get dressed, get in the car, drive to the bookstore, buy the book, come back and read it? You've got plenty of motivation. Don't even worry about it. Uh, this that joke was a little bit before Amazon would just ship the book to your door. But I found both of those things to be funny because there was some truth involved. But for me, my path towards self-awareness really started when I started going through therapy uh, when I was getting divorced, uh, which has been about six years ago now. Um, when I was going in for some help in a variety of different areas, uh, my therapist very accurately saw that my big block, the big thorn that was in my paw was a significant lack of self-awareness. Um, the way that I saw the world and the way I viewed myself was not in alignment with the way others viewed me. A, a perfect example of that. You know, I thought I was a really good listener. Uh, and she said, you know what? You're actually not. Uh, I, I can find that most of the time when you think you're listening, you're not really listening. You're just waiting for your turn to talk. 
you're, you're formulating your defense in your mind and you're not really actively hearing what the other person has to say. And, and thankfully, I was open enough to hear that brutal and raw feedback and was able to start to unpack it and able to, to, to start to do the work necessary um, to become more self-aware. And, you know, self-awareness is not just about the things that you're good at and that you love and your ambitions and your dreams, but it's also having the courage and the vulnerability to look on the other side of, of the curtain and examine the things you're scared of, your fears, your insecurities, your weaknesses, your opportunities for growth. And I used to be so petrified of that stuff that I would suppress it and resist it and ignore it at all costs and just focus on the things that I liked and made me happy. Uh, and most of that was to my detriment. So once I was able to take a deep breath and had the courage to look on both sides of the curtain and say, all of this makes me who I am. And I want to figure out the things on the good side that I really want to emphasize and double down on. But I also want to look on the things where I have opportunities for growth and improve those areas that need to be improved so that I can be a happier, more fulfilled person is when I started to make that, that improvement. So uh, self-awareness is also, uh, it's not something you arrive at. Uh, it's very similar to physical fitness. You know, if right now I can say that, yeah, I'm a pretty physically fit 45 year old, but if I stop eating well and stop working out, I won't be a physically fit 46 year old. And I definitely won't be a uh, physically fit 47 year old. Um, same thing with self-awareness. If you're just going to put that stake in the ground and say, I'm self-aware, but you stop doing the stuff that you need to do to be self-aware, like self-reflection, like having an inner circle of people that help you see your blind spots. As soon as you stop doing that stuff, you are no longer self-aware. So it's really a, a constant evolution and a constant uh, journey. And I'm, I'm thankful, but that's really where the light bulb went off for me. And I say that with a smile because at 45 years old, you know, I spent until my late 30s being rather unaware of some major roadblocks and blind spots that I had. And I'm so glad that that I've been able to kind of see the light as the, they say, and I'm so much happier now and so much more fulfilled, but equally important, I'm so much more successful and significant in my work now than I ever was before. And I don't say that to lack humility. The only reason I can say that is because I've had people like that therapist and my inner circle who have cared enough about me to help me. I love what you said about self-awareness being a daily practice because I think we often don't think of it like that. And I have something called the three-month rule, which is very similar to what you talked about, which is like, the person you are today, if you worked out for the past 10 years, but at for 10 years and three months, you stop working out for that three-month period, there's going to be something different about you. People are going to notice something different about you. You're not going to feel like yourself. And the same thing with fitness, emotional fitness is also the same thing. So yeah, have you found that three-month rule in the sense of like, if you do the habits for three months, you're a completely different person. And if you stop doing them, you're also a completely different person? Oh, without question. You know, what, what's kind of neat is um, uh, I use the 66 days rule, 66 days. And, and I think that's a little less than three months. That's just a hair over two months. Um, but same overall concept. Yeah. And, and that is when we can groove a behavior consistently for 66 days, uh, it starts to stick and you start to notice some of the smaller nuanced changes. Um, you know, it, it doesn't mean your entire life will be radically different after 66 days, but you now have put yourself on the right path. And, and really, 
That's kind of what all of us should be doing. If we're self-aware and if we're honest and vulnerable enough with ourselves to say, okay, uh, what's a new habit that I need to add to my life for the next 66 days? That's going to help get me closer to becoming the person I want to be. Or what's something I need to stop doing because it's undermining my ability to be the person I want to be. Uh, and, And for me, I really try and think of those terms. I don't think, uh, and I do catch myself occasionally going the other path. So once again, this is not about perfection, but I try not to think about what do I want to have two months from now? What do I want to do two months from now? It's more of who do I want to be two months from now? Because I find that if I can be the person that I want to become, then the the haves and the hows and the why, that all stuff just takes care of itself. You know, so uh, for me, that's still part of detaching from the outcome and saying, you know, I don't, I'm not worried about having this at the end of two months, but I do want to become this person. And there is always going to be a gap between who we are and who we strive to be. And there should always be a gap. Even on my dying day, I hope that I haven't reached full actualization. I want to make sure that there is always a little bit of a gap and who I want to be. Because once I've made enough progress to close that gap, then I want to start to aim higher and I want to become even better than that. So so that part I'm okay with. And that's my whole point is, it's not about actually becoming that person. It's really enjoying the work and the journey of slowly trying to become that person. When you can derive enjoyment from that and you're not worried about the outcomes, then you've got something really special. When, when I can say I record a podcast because I love recording the podcast and I love serving an audience and I'm not worried about numbers or downloads or listens, now I'm on to something special. When I can say that I'm writing a book because I enjoy the process of writing the book, I enjoy the research and sharing and the lessons, you know, and I'm not worried about how many copies the book sells, now I've got something really special. Same thing with the, with the keynote. You know, I enjoy the work of of preparing a very customized program, of doing my due diligence and learning as much as I can from the audience. I love the mindset of, you know, hey, tomorrow's game day where I actually have to be at my best. So I need to have some rituals and routines that allow me to be the best that I can be because I owe that to the audience. I owe that to my client and I certainly owe that to myself. And I love all of that. Now, of course, the cherry on top is, you get a standing ovation or you get rave reviews and the evaluations. That's wonderful. And I'd be lying to you if I said that I don't also want those things, but those things are not the driver. The driver is I love the work. I love the doing. I love the pursuit. I love the journey. And that's what's most important. And I would say if I'm giving myself a grade, I give myself about a B, maybe a B plus that I do that most of the time pretty well. And then occasionally I regress and I think, you know, uh, why didn't I get a standing ovation or why didn't I sell more books last week or how come I didn't have more podcast downloads? But now I'm at a point where I can catch myself thinking those things much quicker. I kind of smile, give myself a laugh. And as I said before, I just move to the next play. Well, I give this podcast a standing ovation. Thank you, Alan, for, for joining me today. This has been so much fun. Where can people find you? When they, if they want more Alan in their life after this incredible conversation. Well, boy, I, I had an absolute blast. And I have to say, Danny, you did a masterful job. I mean, he, here's, here's where I think you did a brilliant job. Uh, it was clear that you did your homework and your preparation. And for that, I'm truly grateful that, that you mentioned, I even think before we hit record, 
that you spent a lot of time diving into some of my content in advance. And I appreciate that because I believe that is a sign of respect, that you valued and respected the time that I was going to be investing with you. And for that, man, I'm, I'm truly grateful. But even more important than that is whatever it was that you kind of dug up beforehand, you weren't, so, you weren't grasping onto that so tightly that you were so rigid. I didn't feel like you had a list of questions for me. In fact, my guess is you might have had your initial question kind of ready to go. And then once I started talking, I feel like every question you asked after that was based on what I said. And that might not be true. And please don't, don't spoil it right now if you had a few questions already planted. But you were such a tremendous active listener that I really feel heard. And that makes this so much more fun. And, and I believe that you know better than anyone what your audience needs and wants from, from an interview like this. And you took it down a path of things that not only you wanted to know, but you asked on their behalf as well. So I certainly hope that anyone that listens to this and invests an hour of their time with both you and I uh, is also appreciative uh, of how brilliantly and masterfully you did this. This this was one of the best interviews I've done. And I don't mean from what I say, I mean from, from what you did, man. You were absolutely remarkable. I really appreciate that, man. That means the world to me. Where can people find you? Well, they can go to allensteinjr.com. Uh, they can also go to strongerteam.com. I have two different websites. Uh, allensteinjr.com is, is more set up for the keynote speaking. Stronger Team is more set up for, I have an online course uh, for the book, for the podcast, some of the peripheral stuff. Uh, I also try to be very accessible on social media. So you can find me at allensteinjr uh, on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, I try to be incredibly, not only accessible, but responsive. Uh, I love engaging with folks. Um, so if, if something in our conversation today uh, struck a nerve or you have a question about it, or even if you want to professionally debate it, just send me a DM on Instagram. Um, I, I would love to engage and chat. Uh, and then as I've mentioned several times, I also have a podcast. It's called The Raise Your Game Show, uh, which is in alignment with my book, which is Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best. And you can find all of that stuff at allensteinjr.com or strongerteam.com. Awesome. And those will all be in the show notes as well. Thank you, Alan. This has been so much fun. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for the kind words and for your attention and beautiful wisdom today. Thank you. My pleasure. That was my episode with Alan Stein Jr. Thank you for listening. Also, before you go, I'm starting to post these video versions of the episode, new clips every day or a new episode every day on YouTube. So you could find that at youtube.com slash Danny Miranda. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening until the final seconds. I appreciate you tremendously. And if you'd like to give me your thoughts about the episode, you can do that at Hey Danny Miranda on Twitter. I'll see you guys soon. Peace.